All right, again, thank you, ladies. Appreciate you all so much. Steve and AJ. As we turn back to the New Testament book of Corinthians, chapter 13. We're going to see some weapons, some additional weapons, defensive weapons that God has in his armory for us to use as we look at uh, the message entitled Childish Things. And let's face it, even as adults, some childhood behaviors seem to creep out, don't they, from time to time. I'm working on it. <laughs> I was just about to say, I expected all the wives to say, Amen. <laughs> I know that when my wife, we first got up here, she had a job at uh, one of the daycare centers up here. And they give a report to the, to the ladies who would come in and pick their children up after, after work. And they'd say, well, so-and-so was misbehaved or so-and-so threw a temper tantrum. They'd always say, just like their father. Just like their father. But I'm not so sure that it's limited to men only when it comes right down to it. But it's not my purpose to be demeaning in the title of today's message, however. Adults do display childish or immature responses or overall attitudes that are, that are immature when they don't get their way or when things don't go exactly the way they think they ought to go. Now the Apostle Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spake as a child and I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away what? Childish things. Now, he's not talking about tinker toys and, and all the other kind of stuff that we might have played with, uh, what they call log, made log cabins. Lincoln log. Lincoln log, yeah, Lincoln logs and uh, those other ones now today that uh, Legos and all those good things there. And, uh, but uh, he was talking about attitudes, actions, reactions, maturity versus immaturity when it comes right down to it. And so the verses that I use in this chapter are important in my premarital counseling classes for the simple reason love as the world teaches or expresses is so unlike the love of which God, had, God and his word teaches. And so many a marriage has started out with great expectations to only be destroyed due to a lack of understanding or comprehending love from a divine perspective. And the Bible is about a divine perspective perspective. It is God's perspective. And our perspective should not be in competition with God's perspective. Amen? Right. We need to learn to let go of our perspective of all things and adopt God's perspective. So as, impo as, as important as all this is, the reality is that most people display attitudes and actions that reflect a harbinger of troubles in any relationship, whether between spouses and parents and child uh, as well Friendships to name a few. The failure of any one of us to understand the true actions and the mindset that goes into making love, an emotion of, uh, an, an, an emotion of beauty, of an emotion that has all the stampings of a divine source, is a failure to discover how God defines love. We have our own ideas. And if we would look at our own ideas, I believe that we can find it many times there's a tremendous amount of selfishness, self-centeredness in the way love plays out in our lives. Now, perhaps we can say that the verses of our text, verses 4 and 5, 
are the heart of our subject that relegates selfishness to a childlike behavior or at least to immaturity, while our goal should be to seek the welfare of others. So verses 4 and 5 of our text, eternal one page, and he says there, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, and is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Now, it depends on who's reading that and their application. I read this, I need to apply it to myself. But I believe that when some look at this, even, even Christians would look at that, and they mean that to be for their future spouse. <laughs> Not so much for them, but for their future spouse. And so, in my premarital counseling sessions, I use the word ministry often, because every relationship in the life of the redeemed is an opportunity to minister to the whole needs of others in their lives. And somehow we seem to forget that. We're in, we get into relationships for what we can get out of it. That's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is, I'm in this relationship for what I can put into it, what I can give of myself towards it. And so some of the, some of the most, if not all, divorces are the failure to understand the true character of a genuine and godly love and selfish and immaturity in contentious divorces leads to resentment and grudges with the end result of hatred. Now, it's amazing how what we allege to have started off with the idea of love and it progresses to I'm madly in love to now all of a sudden, however the time frame is that I can't stand that individual. I hate them with a passion. How does it go from that point to the next point? Well, the most successful relationships are those relationships where this becomes the paradigm. When we seek to minister, I minister to my wife. She is my first ministry. My, my children are the second part of that ministry. I am to be, she's to minister to me. And my children, they don't care. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm thankful because there's been so many times they've been such a big help around here and, and they've helped to carry the load in, in a number of ways and, and they've been such a blessing to us. Um, uh, the uh, in-laws as well. But some of the most, if not all, divorces are a failure to understand the true character of a genuine and godly love. And so the very opposite goal in the initial action of love becomes one of hatred. The point being that Paul, letter of the Holy Spirit, is clearly stating in these verses that this divine love is not so much about what we get out of it, but what we put into it. As a, as a husband, my responsibility is to get as close to God as I can possibly get. That I can walk as close to God as I can possibly walk. So that I can be an example to my wife. And vice versa, she does the same. As parents, we do the same for our children. And so we have to understand that any relationship, a friendship, is about an opportunity to be able to minister to that individual. And I believe the bulk of our friendships should be believers as we can minister and encourage and strengthen each other along the way. Well, Father, we look to the message this morning. Pray that you'll guide, you'll direct, and meet the need of this hour. Lord, we're seeing in this particular day and age so much immaturity when it comes to this concept of love.
Lord, this whole concept of no-fault divorce was an easy way out rather than actually sitting down at a table and, and working out the differences in a very godly and a very biblical fashion. We just get a lawyer and we, we divide or we try to ruin each other's lives, whatever it might be. So, Lord, we pray that this morning you'll help us understand this uh, particular chapter right in the middle of 12 and, and 14 where Paul deals with the sign gifts and uh, tongues and so on. So, Lord, as we look at this chapter today, open our minds and our hearts that, Lord, we will see how we can strengthen our love, where we can uh, counsel others who are having problems and that they can see what the real issue is. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the very first point is when immaturity rules in our heart, immaturity. Now, it's amazing how we can overshadow or put on that false facade, if you will, and put our best foot forward and let someone think that we are all grown up with our big boy britches and we're ready to handle the responsibilities of a relationship at a very vulnerable level, such as marriage, or for that matter, even really close uh, relationships, if you will. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 13. And I'm going to lift out something here for you today. I know you probably have read it. You've kind of passed over it. Maybe not have thought much of it. I hope by the time this day is over that you'll think differently. So in this historical record, and remember, folks, I think we need to start referring to the Bible and these historical accounts as records, not stories. I hate that word story. To me, stories have always been about bedtime when you get the book out or the kids crawl up in your lap and say, Pop, read me a story. Uh, it doesn't have to be true. But when you say a historical record, I'm talking about facts. Facts as God has preserved them. Facts as God has, has caused the Holy Spirit, Spirit to write them. So in this historical record which God has preserved, he wants us to see and learn from these events the need for spiritual growth and also spiritual maturity in, in the application of those Bible principles and those Bible precepts. Now, it says in chapter 13 and verse 1 of 2 Samuel, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now, it tends to be a little bit confusing here because it says sister, and you're going to see that eventually uh, Amnon rapes his sister. Well, they were half-brother and half-sister. Many here this morning are already married or have been married and are wondering, what's this got to do with them? I'm a widow or I'm a widower. Or have been married and are wondering what this has to do with them. So, you have friends. So this is good for all friendships. All relationships that you might, might encounter, whether sometimes at work. You know, you may not want to be friends with people at work, but there is still a relationship there. And how we govern ourselves at work, within that working relationship, then we have to remember and remind ourselves that we are representing God in that particular environment. And so the principles in this historical record reveal that selfishness and immaturity in any relationship usually leads to disastrous results. I don't know of too many marriages that really are, are wholesome, enjoyable marriages when immaturity rules in that marriage. Don't know of any. 
In fact, it, oftentimes it leads to disastrous results of divorce. And so in this historical record, we have Amnon, who was born to King David's third wife. His first wife was Micah, Michael, Michael, I get it right. <laughs> uh, Abigail, the uh, wife of the deceased uh, uh, Nabal, and his third wife, which was Ahinoam. And uh, Amnon actually was David's first son. The first two did not have any children until uh, Ahinoam had, uh, had uh, Amnon, so he was the oldest. And uh, Absalom was the third. He was the third oldest. So in this uh, historical record, we are going to see how skewed Amnon's understanding of love was. Many times we mistake lust for love. I remember a professor, I didn't go to Highland Park Baptist, or um, what's it, Tennessee, I didn't go to Tennessee Temple College. I went down there and applied, but we ended up where God led was different than that. But I remember talking with someone and he said that they did not allow young people to get married during the semester. And he said, for one thing, he said, love is patient, love can wake, wait, lust doesn't. And so when you get married based on lust, it's not much of a foundation to build a relationship on. Wherein is love is what we want to build that foundation on, amen? It's what God builds on the foundation of our relationship with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, the clue that something was wrong is the word vexed in verse 2. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Already right there, the thinking is very immature, very ungodly, very worldly, if you will. And so he had become so absolutely possessed with Tamar that it led him to irrational thinking and irrational behavior, as we see in verse 4. And he said unto him, this is his friend, so can I choose your friends wisely? The wrong friends are never going to give you the right kind of advice. Choosing a godly friend may not give you the advice you want, but they'll give you the advice you need. And there's a major difference, amen? That's why his parents were almost always very cautious about the kind of friends that our, that our children keep, the company they keep. But he goes on there, and he says, and, and he said unto him, why art, thou be, why art thou being the king's son? In other words, you have every reason in the world to be happy all the time. You have servants, you have maids, you've got, you've got everything you could possibly want in this world, and why are you so sad? And he says, wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, obviously, uh, 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 can't even pronounce the name, Ahinoam. Anyway, his mother, <laughs> Absalom's mother, and uh, Tamar's mother was also beautiful. And the beauty that she had would pass on in the genes to both 
her children at that point. And so he had become so absolutely possessed with Tamar. And folks, sometimes when our teenagers begin to have strong feelings for the opposite gender, and we notice their emotional change, guys look like zombies. They're kind of walking around in a cloud somewhere. All they can think about is whoever it is that tweaked their attention. And girls, pretty much the same. But neither one of them can think straight. And a lot of times when it comes to young girls, their day is ruined if so-and-so didn't give them a call or didn't check in with them to find out what was going on for the day. And they will mope. But we notice their emotional change, the loss of concentration, moodiness, and we think to ourselves, they have a crush, or experiencing what we call puppy love. I think it's aptly named puppy love. Because puppy love entails, or we find ourselves, and Sam was puppy love. My daughter would foster rescues. And she dared to bring Sam, which was a pudgy little cocker, no, it was a pudgy little uh, King Charles Cavalier. And I held him. And he cuddled up. And he said, take me home, take me home. And we took him home. Oh, anybody want Sam? <laughs> We're ready to give you Sam at this particular point. You can, you can take him home if you want. But they call it puppy love until it comes to the time we have to walk them. And it's cold. And they don't want to walk. They, and they want you to pick them up and carry them. We have to clean up after them. We have to train them. We have to break them in. My word in the world, what was I foolish when I thought I was falling in love with this thing? And so we ask ourselves this question, why? Why? Life was somewhat much happier before Sam came. <laughs> Not that we don't enjoy him. We just don't enjoy him as much as we thought we were going to. <laughs> and so this is the time, though, when you sense that young people are, grandparents when you're grandchildren, and you sense that there is an individual coming in life. I'm not telling you to lecture them. But it is, certainly is a, a time for sure that as parents we need to talk to our sons and daughters what real, genuine, biblical love entails. What it looks like. How it functions. And to see it from, God, from God's perspective. Amnon's lust, Amnon's immaturity ruled in his heart. And it caused him to overrule what he knew was wrong. It controlled his thought life. The Bible said he was vexed. And his lack of understanding of what love really is led him to make a foolish 
and a stupid decision. We see the plot in verses 5 through 11. I'm not going to read all of that, but we'll read some of that. And it says, And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed, and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat, and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it, and eat it at her hand. And so they were plotting to get Tamar to come to the house, and then to get Tamar to come into the bedroom, where Amnon would eventually rape her. And so we have the voice of reason also as we look at verse 12 and 13. He says, And she, that is Tamar, answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither will I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. So she was the voice of reason. She was the voice of maturity, the voice of sensibility. She was not going to allow love to dictate what she thought or how she thought or how she felt. So the true measure or the true nature of the heart when our concept of love is skewed, is discovered in verses 15 through 17. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly. Now wait a minute, this is what you wanted for. You longed for. You thought about it day and night. You plotted and you planned and you reasoned. And now, it says here, And Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love. Wherewith he had loved her. And Ammon said unto her, Arise, be gone. And she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil is in sending me away is greater than the other that thou hast done unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servants that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. There was a digression. First of all, there was a lack of maturity. There was a lack of understanding. And then there was the being a troubled soul wanting what it wanted at any cost, at any price, that eventually decayed to absolute hatred and resentment. That which he so longed for became the very thing that he, he resented. And this is what happens so oftentimes in so many divorces. Sometimes they're amicable, but there still is a lot of pain, there's a lot of hurt. Sometimes there's resentment and sometimes there's an all-out battle, especially when children are involved. Now, while this historical record may not be the same verbatim, the very lack of understanding love from God's perspective is sure to align closely in it and its end result. It appears that King David did nothing other than get angry, it says in verse 21 of the same chapter. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. He should have dealt with it. He should have dealt with it under the laws of Israel, under the, under the laws of the law of Moses. You know, it was interesting. There were four, I think it was three or four teenage girls that hijacked a car. And as they threw the woman out, her arm got caught in the door and they dragged her, I don't know how far down the road. And uh, she lost her arm uh, in, that, in that carjacking. 
And as it turns out, the police finally caught up with, with, with at least one of them. And one of the parents had the maturity to turn their child in. Then my daughter was one of them. I, tell you, I think that had to be one of the hardest things they had to do. But they did the thing that was right. And if they're going to learn anything, they have to, listen, if, you're going to, if, you can't, if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. But we have got a generation that thinks that they can do whatever they want and not have to pay the consequences accordingly. And there's many adults who are the same way. We can look at this book. We can disobey this book. We don't have to follow it in its entirety. And we're going to be okay. Well, that's not true. So it appears King David did nothing. Tamar's brother Absalom was so incensed, as well he should be, that he also became enraged. So uh, no one person is an island unto themselves. When I do things that are contrary to the things that God would have me to do, it impacts my wife. When, I, when the kids are at home, it would impact them. And my walk and my relationship with God would be very easily discernible and reflected in my wife and in my family. Because I'd be neglecting not just my spiritual responsibilities, I would be neglecting theirs as well. But he became enraged and he sought opportunity to kill his half-brother Amnon. And we see in verses 22, and, and 22 through 32, but we'll jump up to verse 32. And it says here, And Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose that they have slain all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon only is dead. For by the appointment of Absalom, this hath been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamnar. Now what had happened is Absalom had invited all the king's sons, not for lack of a better word, a picnic or a get-together, a parley of some sort. And when they were there, Absalom took uh, Amnon's life. So his complete misunderstanding, his lack of maturity, his immaturity brought him to the place where he had raped and paid with his life. And we can say more about Absalom because he fled as a result and was in exile for two years. But anyway, this act of Amnon may have been indicative of or the characteristic of David's family. They were the king's sons. They could do pretty much what they wanted or do what they pleased. But I believe there was a tremendous amount of jealousy and envy between half-brothers and half-sisters as David had seven wives. That was much different than, than Joseph who had 12 children. No, Jacob. <laughs> Jacob had 12 children. And there was very little harmony because he had four wives. And each of the wives had X number of sons. And they were always one jealous of the other. And they all became jealous of, of, of Joseph. And so what it does show is the disastrous results. When the object of love is supposed to be about the welfare of, uh, when, when, the, when the object of love, which is supposed to be about the welfare of others, the desire to minister to the needs of others rather than self. We need to learn that other people have needs and if God has brought us in their lives, if there's some way, biblically speaking, that we can strengthen them and encourage them. That is the responsibility of children of God in their interpersonal relationships. 
is to come together in maturity and to encourage them in the things of the Lord as well. Which brings us to the second and the only other point we've got this morning is when maturity rules in the heart. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if we go back there again. And again, in my premarital counseling classes, this is one of those areas where I, I tell them to go and I want them to go through chapter, uh, chapter 13 and I want them to look out verses 4 through 8 and look up those words and uh, I want them to get a good understanding about God's perspective. So chapter 13, we've already read that. So the best way to avoid disaster in any relationship is to understand what it is that, can, that, that uh, constitutes a divine love and how it is to function and to look. Now, we can see it in the Lord Jesus Christ, but God wants that to be manifested in us as well, the redeemed of the Lord. And so God takes it upon himself to give it to us straight up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He doesn't mince any words. This is what real love looks like. And if you can't identify it based on what you see in the scripture in someone else's life, then you need to pack up your bags and move in the other direction. Don't get involved. Don't get so deeply involved that you can't back out. Now, there are many times in a Christian wedding that the couple wants these verses read uh, at the time of their nuptials. And it is, and I believe it's good to do so. But I believe it's, it's, it's empty if they don't know what it means. You know, sometimes we look at poetry and we don't take the time um, to try to discern the deeper meaning of the author of the particular poem or the painting, if you will. And so uh, it, 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 is, it is good to do so, but fruitless if it is only about sounding poetic and nice rather than a, than a full-time call to ministry in a relationship of any kind. Now, it's a, it, it's a very close and intimate relationship when you get married. And you're going to have to have the real strength of the Lord to be able to minister into the other person's life. Now, when God brought Peg into my life and uh, we became an item in our church and we decided to get married, it was that God called me to minister into her life. And she is to minister into my life. And you see, the interesting thing about that is when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and she's doing what she's supposed to be doing, it's amazing. No battles. Amen? Because I'm, I'm exercising my responsibilities that God has given to me as a husband. And she's exercising her responsibilities to God concerning being a wife. And there's no conflict. And so that's why in my, in my counseling sessions, I, one of the things I, I want to deal with is the idea of rights versus responsibilities. And then the wife will look at me and say, but I don't, I have a right preacher. And the husband will look at me and say, yeah, but I have a right. How do you solve that? They're not solvable. As long as I'm going to stand my ground and say, I have a right, and she's going to say, I have a right, and neither one's going to back down. And so you tell them, do you realize that in the scripture there is absolutely nowhere in scripture where God says that you have a right? Amen. Multiple times God says you have a responsibility. And those responsibilities between the two of us, there's, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a melding and a, and a, a knitting together of fulfilling God's responsibilities to him and to each other. As parents, we have responsibilities given to us by God to our children. And our children, our young people, they have responsibilities to God, to us as their parents. And that's how God wants it to work. It's not about, oh, I have a right to this, and I have a right to that. That's why we're having so much trouble in our society, because nobody knows how to love each other unconditionally. It's all based on rights. 
I have my rights. Well, Dr. Benny says you can have your rights, which leads to nothing but rebellion. Whereas responsibilities leads to revival. What a difference. What a difference. So in this brief verses 4 and 7, God gives us 15 characteristics of divine love, which he has uh, the, ex- the expectations that we as redeemed of the Lord will exercise in our relationships. And we'll be done there pretty soon. Uh, number one, charity suffereth long. Now charity is uh, akapeo, akapao. And I believe it's stronger than the simple word love. Because when you think of love, you think of an emotion. When you think of charity, you think of what? An action. It is the love of doing something. Maybe the charity you give to an organization. You give to missions because you love the gospel and you want to have them on the foreign field so they can get the gospel out. And so when it says charity suffereth long, it means to be mild-mannered, to be patient, bearing the offenses and injuries of others. It means to persevere. I believe you can diminish that by choosing someone to marry if you're on the same page, so to speak, or if you're at parity with them. If you take someone who is mature and someone who is immature, they don't understand the things you understand or the things you have come to know, know and experience to be true. But being the more mature one, you're going to have to do the, the greater uh, perseverance as they grow along the way. So charity suffereth long, mean, meaning to persevere. You don't kind of throw in the towel and say, this is not what I intended for marriage to be. I'm out of here. You don't do that. You persevere. But it also says charity is kind, meaning to be mild-mannered and to use kindness, not to retaliate in anger because something didn't go exactly the way you wanted them to go. We had this last vacation we took back earlier in this fall, Stopped to see various family members, and we stopped by to see my, my brother's wife. My, bro- old, my older brother Jerry's gone home to be with the Lord. But I, I remember a conversation that we had at a, t- at a table, at, I think it was at my other sister's house. And she was saying that, she said that Jerry, my brother, was so patient. And it isn't that she wasn't saved, and it wasn't that she didn't go to a Baptist church, and it wasn't that she wasn't raised in a Christian home. She said, I have been so adversely affected by the women's liberation movement in college. Should I had actually didn't realize I had bought into some of that stuff. And he said, my, and she says that Jerry, my brother, was so patient and so loving and so kind as I worked my way through that to get to where I knew I should be. And so sometimes that happens in relationships as well. But also it says it envieth not. That means to be heated, not to be heated. Or to boil with envy and hatred and anger and get even, uh, get even attitude, which means there's no sleeping on the couch or being in the doghouse. <laughs> That's foolishness. That's not how you resolve a conflict. That's not how you handle a disagreement. Shouting and screaming and yelling never solved a thing. James chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Don't get angry with your spouse. Don't get angry with those in your fellowship. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Say, Lord, 
Help me to have the wisdom that I need to work, out, work this thing out. And the fourth thing is that it runneth not itself. There is no me in a relationship, just we. No me, just we. You're in it together. Amen? And if you're going to be true to the scriptures, you're going to be in it until the end. Whichever one dies first or if the rapture occurs. So the fifth one is love is not puffed up or charity is not puffed up. which is akin to being self-centered. Love seeks to nurture others. What can I do to meet your need? Back when Bill Cosby was on and he had a couple of his suitors that were in his play pretend daughters and uh, his wife had asked him, can you give me a drink of water? Sure, my dear. And he gets up and goes and gets her a drink of water and the guy looks at him and says, what? Why did you do that? Why, why didn't she go get her own water? And he said, boy, you have a lot to learn. <laughs> well, you know, love is not what someone does for you, but what you can do for others. It gives you an incentive to, yeah, they got two legs and they're not hurt and they could go get that glass of water or they could go out and move the car and, or take them to an appointment that you don't want to go to. You do it because you love them. And so it's not about me, it's about we. But it's also not puffed up, which I said about selfishness. It does not behave unseemingly. Love does act, I should say, love does not act unbecoming. The idea that God's divine love is pure, unlike the world's perspective. I mentioned about rights versus responsibilities. Ladies, you have a responsibility to your husbands. Husbands, you have a responsibility to your wives. And you know what? It's amazing. When we're doing that, we're living that, we're exercising that. I mean, it's, 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 it's like a V8 engine that's finely tuned. That thing just purrs right along. Even when it hits a bump and a glitch in the road, it still purrs right along. But also... Seeketh not her own. It puts the needs of others first. Puts the needs of others first. Also, it said it's not easily provoked. That is to irritate, to provoke, to arouse, to anger. My responsibility is to not irritate my wife. I do the best. <laughs> Men, I think we're born with, a, with an irritating gene. I'm not sure. Uh, but, uh, I mean, we, do, we have to be careful about what we say and how we act and what we do. I mean, when we looked at each other, when that, we were each other's love of each other's life. And I've seen men take better care of their cars than they had taken care of their wives. I've seen men liberal with their time, not including in their wives in the bulk of it. And vice versa, I've seen as well. And so, not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Love does not think or plan on ways to get even. I'll fix your wagon. She can't tell me, or he can't tell me. 
<laughs> it's amazing how many people have that attitude. Now, they may not say it, but they'll think it. And they act accordingly. Well, love thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. That is, the unrighteousness of heart and life. Rather, love rejoices in doing what is right and expected of us by God and his children. Now, my responsibility here at Calvary Baptist Church is to preach the word of God. But it is also to be a servant to the Lord. And in my, my servanthood to the Lord, I'm to be a servant to the people of God as well. You are God's people. You're not my people. Altogether, we're God's people. I'm not to lord it over God's heritage, which means I'm not supposed to become selfish and get out of it for what I can get out of it. God called me, and he has called all pastors and all missionaries and all evangelists to put into the lives of others, to expend ourselves on behalf of others. And so when you decide to have children, it's not like, what did we do? I mean, not like getting a puppy. But I mean, you're going to have them for the next 18 years. And so, you've got to put into their lives more than you get out of it. But it also beareth all things. This love is able to endure in a fallen world of darkness. So many things pulling, so many things pulling in different directions against, first of all, our relationship with the Lord, then with each other. Also says, believeth all things. One's love for God believes every word in his word. We can't go through there and pick and choose and say, well, I like this, but I don't like this. And oh, this applies to him, but it doesn't apply to me. We've got to go through the word of God and realize what God has written in there. He has written every single word for me as well as for you. And I can't just arbitrarily pick and choose what I want to apply and what I don't want to apply. And I can't reassign them to my wife. I have my responsibilities that God's going to hold me accountable for, as well as her responsibilities he's going to hold her accountable for. But I am to believe everything in this book. I am to believe every principle, to believe every promise, every exhortation, every command, every prophecy, every historical account. In my heart, it is true. Now, it hasn't been just too long ago that there are many in the uh, secular archaeological world said that David never existed. King David never existed because they didn't have any record. Then all of a sudden they found in, an, in another country, in another place, they found a mention of King David. Well, duh. God told you that in the first place. Amen. Why do we have to make things so difficult and so hard? Why do we have to go out of our way to prove that God was right in the first place? Man, I think I've been down that road far too many times and I could not, not want to do it ever again. But also, they hope with all things. Patiently trusts and waits for God's promises to come to pass. Sometimes we may have to wait. Listen, it's a fact. We knew that, my dad, that, that God loved my dad. We loved my dad, but my dad wasn't a Christian. Now, he, was a, he was a moral man. And... He didn't stand in the way of our spiritual growth. He would encourage it, but he just didn't want to get involved. But we, my mother, I think, waited 40-some-odd years for God to answer her prayer. 
and he did get saved. There was a promise met. And so there were things that we go through in our lives, things that we would rather not go through if we had a choice. But if God brings them into our lives, then we hang on to his promises. No matter how dark the valley gets, no matter how dark, how dark the tunnel gets, God's always there. He said he would be there. He would never leave us nor forsake us. We have to hang on to those promises. Every promise in the word of God is true. So it endures. It's that God in his time, in his perfect timing, will deliver accordingly. I don't know about you, but wouldn't it be nice to have the rapture occur? But then we think, I say, wait a minute, we, got, we have some unsaved loved ones. We have unsaved family members that, that don't know you. And, and when that rapture occurs, they're never going to get saved. Whoa. So we can endure the darkness of this world. The escalating immaturity, spiritual immaturity. A little bit longer if it means someone else gets saved along the way. But it says also endureth all things. It means to hold fast one's faith in Christ. It holds fast. When we hold on to God's promises, we have to hold. Now, I, I could tell you a story. We're getting too late. I don't have time for that. But to hold fast one's faith in God. And I can think back early stages when I, going to, when I was going to school. I knew that was true. But it didn't seem like God was coming through in the time frame that I felt God should have come through. And so I took matters into my own hand only to afterwards see what God had planned. And all I could do was think to myself, what an idiot. How dumb can we be sometimes? How foolish can we be? So relationships are not about competition, but complementing those involved in the relationship. However, when love is not forged by scriptural principles as we have briefly touched on, selfishness leads to resentment and resentment to anger with the dismantling or the ruining of a relationship, be it marriage or otherwise. In God's armory, he has provided you and I with the defensive weapons that we need to, as I have touched on from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So don't let Satan mislead you concerning what real love is. You will never love your mate today as much as you will love them later. Because love is a verb, it's an action. And when you're ministering into each other, and you're facing the same issues, you're dealing with the same crisis together, and you can come on bended knee before God and present them before the throne of grace. It builds. It builds. And so, that whether it was love at first sight, you're going to find out that 10, 15, 20 years, when you begin to look like two prunes, you're still in love with each other as much as you were when you were in your 20s or whatever. So, biblical love puts others before self. Christ's love for you and I, he put us first. He went to the cross. He gave his life. He shed his blood so that you and I become a part of the family of God. John 15 and verse 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Lay down your life. Are you willing and are you ready to lay down your life? Now, you can, you can look at that in a physical sense. Or you can just look at it as not getting your way. I'm willing, I'm willing to step aside from what I want. 
to meet the need that you have right now. That's also, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Father, we thank you for this time that we could be together today, and we thank you for the patience of your folk, and we pray that, Lord, you'll guide and direct. And, and, and Lord, we know that the world, when we look around and they don't have a clue as to what really satisfies. And Lord, that's why there's such a big business in alcohol. That's why there's such a big business in drug and, and, and addiction and all of these things. That's why there is so many misdeeds that take place is because the, the world, Lord, they, have, they don't have a clue. They have no solutions. Lord, we're seeing some of their solutions today and their solutions aren't any solutions at all. Lord, it's, it's just a replication of the same old, same old that has existed uh, throughout all of, etern uh, all, all of human history. The Lord here in our text is the heart. A godly perspective on what constitutes real love. What it looks like. What it accomplishes. What it does. And how it functions. And Lord, if we can just grasp this and we can make it the central theme of our heart, then Lord, we can be the children that you desire, the children that you want to use, the children that you can't use because it puts others first. And so Lord, you got in direct during this invitation time, whether at home or here in the sanctuary. And folks at home, if God has spoken to your heart, you can make the same choices and decisions that I'm asking our folk to make. And that is this. Whether you're single or whether you're married, or whether you're a widow or a widower, we have relationships at various levels. And we need to be the most spiritually mature individuals in that relationship. Ladies, I'm going to tell you right now, don't you marry a guy who doesn't have an understanding of biblical love. I don't know why in the world you'd put yourself out there to have a life that could possibly be miserable or a life that you can't really relate to on a spiritual level. And it'd be the same for, for men, single or otherwise. Why you would want to marry someone who's not saved, who does not have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that can guide you and can direct you and teach you these things that we've looked at here this morning. The most important thing that we can ever do as parents is to teach our young people what genuine love from the Bible and then when they watch mom and dad in their lives together. I want you to think about that for a moment. Because moms and dads, pops and grammys, we have an opportunity to let our children see 1 Corinthians chapter 13, alive. And we need to make sure that we do just that. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And you say, preacher, pray for me. I want others to be able to sample this divine love, whether it's in our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren or our neighbors or people that we work with. We want them to be able to taste and to see the love of God 
in our hearts and our lives. Preacher, would you pray for me in closing? Yes. I see hands here and hands. I, I, listen, I, I know that there are people out there who really make it tough. But I'm here to tell you that God is bigger. The Holy Spirit is stronger. And you can do what might seem to be the impossible and love the unlovable with a true, genuine, godly love. You can do that. It's a choice. It's a decision. Preacher, pray for me. And maybe this one you're saying, Preacher, I, I don't really know where I'm going to spend eternity. Then I'd encourage you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to know he loves you. And he wants you to be in heaven with him for eternity. And unless you come by a saving faith, you're not going to get there. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Christ has done all that is necessary, and all we have to do is to accept him by faith. Preacher, pray for me. I have no idea where I'm going to spend eternity. Pray for me this morning. Would you pray for me? Well, Father, we thank you for the sign that we could be together. We pray for the meal that's coming up. But we do ask and pray that, Lord, all of us from this pulpit to the furthest who's listening to us on, online today, that your spirit will have spoken to us and that, Lord, we would present a new chapter in our lives if it's not already there. And that is to put the interest of others first, to love others in a way that they know that they are being genuinely loved and compassionate and, and that we're being genuinely compassion, compassionate, compassionate for them. And so would you guide and direct and, and meet the hour and be with Brother Steve as he brings the uh, afternoon message. But bless the food, bless the fellowship uh, during this time. So we pray these things uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all God's people said, Amen.